0: So it's page 1130, Romans 3, beginning at verse 9. What should we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written... There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Let's just open in a brief word of prayer. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your glorious word. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us. We pray that you will send your spirit to soften our hearts, to draw us near to you through what we hear this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. As you'll know if you've been coming along, we've been studying Paul's letter to the Romans over the last few weeks. And this morning, we come to what Don Carson calls a terrifying passage which bears on one of the hardest truths to communicate today. That is a massive understatement. But before we get to the passage, I'd like to read you another letter. And this is a letter that was written to Jesse Owens. Jesse, as you may recall, was the black athlete who won four gold medals at the 1936 Berlin Olympics, much to the embarrassment of the host, one Adolf Hitler. Jesse walked away not only with those medals, but he also walked away with a very strong friendship with a guy by the name of Lutz Long. And Lutz was Jesse's tall, white, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, long-jump rival who congratulated Jesse on his win in full view of Adolf Hitler. Jesse and Lutz kept in touch through letters after that. And I'd like to read you a letter that Lutz wrote to Jesse from North Africa, where he was stationed during the Second World War with the German army. I'm here, Jesse, where it seems there is only dry sand and wet blood. I do not fear so much for myself. I fear for my wife, who is home, and my young son, Kai, who has never really known his father. My heart tells me, if I am honest with you, that this is the last letter I shall ever write. If it is so, I must ask you something, something so very important to me. It is that you go to Germany when this war is done, that you find Kai, and that you tell him about his father. Tell him, Jesse, what times were like when we were not separated by war. Tell him how things can be between men on this earth. As you will do this for me, this thing that I need to most know will be done, I will do something for you now. I will tell you something I know you want to hear, something that is true. That hour in Berlin when I first spoke to you, when you had your knee upon the ground, I knew that you were in prayer. Then I knew not, what I know now. I know it is never by chance that we come together. I came to you that hour in 1936 for a greater purpose than Der Berliner Olympiad. And you, I believe, will read this letter, even though it should not be possible for it to ever reach you, for a purpose greater even than our friendship. I believe this will come about because I now think that God will make it come about. That is what I have to tell you, Jesse. I think I might believe in God. And I pray to him, even while it should not be possible for this to ever reach you, that these words I write will still be read by you, your brother, Lutz. It's a remarkable letter, isn't it? Lutz wrote the letter for a number of reasons. But his overriding and his heartfelt concern was for his child, for the well-being of his son, Kai. It was similar with Paul. Paul's overriding, heartfelt concern was for this church in Rome, for this church family. It was for the eternal well-being of that family. He had strong words for them, and he has strong words for us. And he wrote them because he loved that church in Rome like Lyds loved Car, Kai. They were near to him and they were dear to him. And it's obvious if you look at what he wrote in chapter 1. I pray that now at last by God's will the way may be opened for me to come to you. And also he says in chapter 15 at the end of the letter, I've been longing for many years to see you. Pray please that by God's will I may come to you and together we may be Refreshed. Paul had a deep, abiding love for the church in Rome. He wanted to be with them. He wanted to fellowship with them. He wanted to serve them. But above all, there's one thing that he wanted for them. He wanted them to be in the right with God. That's why Paul wrote this magnificent letter. He wanted them to be in good standing with God. He wanted them to be in the right with God. And I use that phrase phrase deliberately because it explains well one of the words that the Bible uses. Paul wanted them, and he wanted us, to be righteous in God's eyes. The word translated as righteous is a rich, multifaceted, and complex word in the Bible. Sometimes it's translated as justified. It's the same word. It's a characteristic of God. He's a righteous God. He's a God who's always true, who's always right, who's always just. It describes God's character. But the aspect of the word righteous that we will focus on this morning is the one that is used to describe what God expects of us, that we be righteous, that we be in the right with him, that we be in good standing with him. So the word doesn't just mean be good. if you're anything like me, when you hear the word righteous, your head immediately goes to being good and to doing good things. That's not all that the word means. The word means that, but it also means being in a trusting, a loving, and a true, and a right relationship with God, so that he welcomes you with loving, open arms, so that you are right with him. That's what Paul wanted for the Romans when he wrote this letter, above all. And so he starts by spending the first three chapters of the letter explaining what their position what their standing is with god now what it really is how he regards them and it's not good news because we are not naturally in the right with god and paul in the first two and a half chapters reveals our condition and he tears down our defenses and he proves that we are unequivocally in the wrong And then in today's passage, he summarizes everything he said before in a brilliant, devastating indictment of us, in which he draws deeply from the Psalms. It's a passage that feels like the close to a legal argument, because that, in part, is exactly what it is. And in the indictment, he says three things to us. He says, sin rules our relationship with God. He says, sin rules our relationship with people. And he says, sin cannot be conquered. And then the passage ends. So we'll look at those three aspects. We'll look at how sin rules our relationship with God. We'll look at how sin rules our relationship with people. And we'll look at how sin cannot be conquered. But we won't stop there because if I stop there, people will leave this building and start jumping off other buildings, which I do not need on my conscience. So then we'll briefly look at a final point. Sin has been conquered. So firstly, sin rules our relationship with God. What Paul does is he takes the quotes in the middle that speak about us in verses 13 to 17 and he bookends them with two comments about God and about our position with God. So look at verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. That's his first bookend. And then the second one is verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. He starts with our relationship with God. And his opening comment is that we all, without exception, are under sin, as he puts it. But what does that mean? What does he mean by under sin? What does he mean by sin? John recently introduced us to Don Carson's book, Scandalous. And in there... Carson outlines the fact that the most challenging thing to convince people of nowadays when you talk to them about Christianity and the gospel is the concept of sin. And this is what he says. Sin is generally a snicker word. You say it and everybody snickers. There is no shame attached to it anymore. It is so hard to get across how ugly sin is to God. When I talk about sin, I have gone to meddling. I'm not talking about a group of external ideas that people may or may not believe. I'm talking about a category they feel they must repudiate in its entirety. There is so much in our culture that teaches us that we define our own sins, either individually or socially. We live in the age where the one wrong thing to say is that somebody else is wrong. And that's the age we live in. If I define the rules, then who are you to judge them judge me by them you live by your own rules i will live by my rules just leave me out of it please i'll do as i please i'll be my own lawmaker i will be my own god god finds that abhorrent the bible insists there's only one lawmaker and it insists that it is god it insists that sin is first and foremost to do with god and my relationship with him the starting point is god what i do to others Follows and is secondary. And if we don't understand that, we will miss the entire point. We will miss the point completely about the gospel and about our situation. So Paul starts by considering how God feels about sin. And if you flip back in your Bible in chapter 1, verse 18, this is what he starts with: telling us how God feels about sin. And he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. And that's our big problem. Our big problem isn't climate change, or untrustworthy politicians, or anything else that's horizontal. Our big problem is that we've tried to usurp God's rightful position, and that's the core of the problem, That stands between us and God. We've tried to dethrone him. We try to deify ourselves. And so God is angry. He's patient, yes. He's loving, yes. He's kind and long-suffering, definitely. But he's angry. He's in a settled disposition of wrath against mankind, absolutely. Now you, as with many others, may be tempted to say, that's not the God I know. Well, with all due respect, perhaps then you don't know the true God. There's a theologian by the name of Niebuhr who once put it very well. He said that if we try and remove the wrath of God from what we believe about Him, then all we have is a God without wrath, who brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment, through a Christ without a cross. That's why Paul, in this indictment, this summary indictment in the passage today, tops and tails, what we do to each other with what we do to God, because that's the starting point. Without God above and underneath this thing, and without understanding his wrath, our situation makes no sense, and the cross makes no sense. The starting point when you're thinking about sin is God. But again, what does he mean when he says Jews and Gentiles alike are under sin? Or what does he mean when he says we don't understand? What does he mean when he says we don't seek God? Isn't that a bit harsh? Maybe it's just hyperbole, poetic license. Unfortunately not. He's talking about three things. He's talking about your legal position. He's talking about your nature. And he's talking about your worship. Those three things. Firstly, your legal position is that you are under sin. It's the same as being unrighteous. There's no one righteous, not even one. We're not in the right with God. We stand before him in the dock, as it were, and we are guilty. That's our legal position before God. And it's a legal position we all find ourselves in. The Jews, who were the privileged nation in the Old Testament, that God knew as a nation. And the Gentiles, everybody else, then and now, you and me, most of us the religious moralists who think they will be fine because they go to church and they know what's right and what's wrong, and the irreligious who think they will be fine because they don't know about this God and they can plead ignorance. And Paul spent most of the letter up to now proving that neither of those groups will escape God's judgment and escape his wrath. So that's the first thing he means, your legal position is under sin. Secondly, He means that your nature is under sin. He means that sin is pervasive. It affects everything you do, and it affects everything you are. It affects your sense of identity. It affects your emotions. It affects your intellect. It affects your desires. It affects your sexuality. It affects your will. You are completely tainted. He is not saying you're as sinful as you can be. But he is saying that you are thoroughly tainted. He's saying that sin is 100% effective in the extent to which it affects you, but he's not saying it's 100% effective in the degree to which it affects you. Think of a glass of ink, and think of alongside it a glass of water. He's not saying you're the glass of ink. He's saying you're the glass of water with a measure of ink stirred into it. You're not completely sinful, but you are permeated. Every part of you is sinful. Nothing is unaffected, not even your good deeds. And that's also partly why Paul says in verse 12, there's no one good, not even one. Now, it's a fair question to ask and to say, aren't there many people who've never heard of Christ who do lots of good things? You probably know many of them, and probably a few are at home. You have to remember that Paul's talking about our relationship with God and whether what we're doing is acceptable to God. He's speaking to motive. He recognizes something as truly good when it has two characteristics, when it is a good thing and when it is a thing done in acknowledgement of him. That is good. He recognizes something as good when it comes out of a free spirit as a gift to God and as a service to men, not as something to earn a reward. Charles Spurgeon, 19th-century preacher, the Prince of Preachers, once used, well, often used in illustration, and he said, once in a kingdom very long ago, there was a very poor gardener who grew a huge carrot. This gardener loved his prince, his regent, and he went to the prince and he took the carrot and said, I want to give this to you. And he didn't expect anything in return. And the prince was so moved that he said, Thank you. He said, I have a massive piece of land next to the castle. It's yours. Go out and cultivate it. Standing in the hall was a nobleman who saw this all happening. And he thought, if that's what he gets for a carrot. And he went home and he got his finest steed, his horse. And he brought it to the king. And he walked up to the king and he said, I want to give you my finest steed. And the king said to him, looked at him and said, I don't want it because I know what you are doing. You see, the gardener brought the carrot to give it to me, but you've brought the horse to give it to yourself. That's the difference. That's the illustration that Spurgeon uses. His point is that for something to be recognized as good means it's good in its effect, and it's good in its motive, in its intent. So our legal position is undisinted. Our nature is under sin. And lastly, our worship is under sin. Look at verse 11. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. No one who seeks God, really. Maybe some of you don't like to hear that. Maybe this is the point at which you feel the urge to leave or maybe being English, to at least quietly and imperceptibly drift off in disapproval. Maybe you object to the Bible saying, no one seeks God, and you're thinking that you know a number of people who are seeking God. But let's be clear about what the Bible is saying. He is not saying that no one wants spiritual peace or a power to deal with their anxiety. He's not saying that no one wants forgiveness from their guilt. He's not saying that no one wants God to answer their prayers. He's not saying that no one has an intellectual interest in the possibility of God. He's not saying that no one tries to find a God-shaped thing to fill the God-shaped hole in their lives. He's saying that no one naturally has a real passion to meet the real God. No one naturally wants to know and be known by a sovereign, holy God who requires that you bow down before him, that you relinquish control to him, that you die to yourself, and that you glorify and enjoy him for what he is. No one naturally wants that. Jesus agrees in John chapter 6 when he says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. And in his letter to Timothy, Paul says in his hope for the unrighteous, that God will grant them repentance, will give them repentance as a gift, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, not the other way around. No one naturally wants the real God, and the only way we can is if God himself steps in first. One of the commentators put it very well when he said this. He said, turning to God as Lord isn't something we do to find God, It's something God does in us so we can find him. So that's the first thing Paul says in his indictment. Sin rules our relationship with God. The second thing is that sin rules our relationship with people. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips... Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. I said that our nature is under sin and it affects everything we are. That includes what we say, tongues which practice deceit, and what we do. Feet swift to shed blood. Larry Taunton wrote a wonderful biography about Christopher Hitchens, which I highly recommend. And in that biography, he describes how, in a conversation he was having with Hitchens, he once asked him if man was, in his view, good or bad, born good or bad. And Hitchens' answer, in classic Hitchens' style, was swift and emphatic. And he said, man is unquestionably evil. And he went and had a drink. As only he can Commendable honesty from an atheist. We're born under sin because of what our original parents did. It affects everything we do. It affects everything we say. We destroy people by what we say. We destroy people from what, by what we do. Let me give you a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. and Dietrich was running, writing this during World War II. He said, as Germany's armies moved towards Moscow... The barbarism of the SS had again been given the freedom to express itself. It was as if the devil and his hordes had crawled out of hell and walked the earth. In Lithuania, SS squads gathered defenseless Jews together and beat them to death with truncheons, afterward dancing to music on the dead bodies. The victims were cleared away, a second group was brought in, and the macabre exercise was repeated while the innocent stood by. That's what we're capable of. That's what we're all capable of, actively by deed or passively by turning a blind eye. And if you doubt that, then maybe a thought experiment will help you. What do you think would happen if the law courts, the police, all forms of law enforcement and justice disappeared from the United Kingdom tomorrow? How do you think people would react? Let me take it further. What would happen if there were no consequences for doing anything wrong? What if everybody could get away with anything? Let's take it further still. What would happen if anonymity was 100% guaranteed? Nobody knew what anybody had done. What do you think would start to happen in our society and in our community? and across the world. I think we know because we've seen it in Germany, in Kosovo, in Syria, and on and on. It does not bear thinking about. Now you might be saying, I still wouldn't do anything wrong. Wouldn't you? You're absolutely sure? How did you feel the last time that idiot cut you off at the black dam roundabout? <laughs> or when someone slighted or discredited you at work? or when you had that no-holds-barred screaming match at home, if that happened and you had absolute power, with no fear of justice or recrimination, what would you do? What would most people do? How do you feel thinking about that when you hear what Christ says in Matthew chapter 5? You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. To judgment I've labored the point enough if you don't know what you're capable of you either don't know yourself well enough or you just haven't been around long enough apart from God ruin and misery marks our way we've seen how we're indicted because sin rules our relationship with God We've seen how we're indicted because sin rules our relationship with people. And if that's not enough, Paul then briefly summarizes what he spent a lot of time covering up to now, namely that you cannot conquer your sin. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. So that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Now, Paul's dealt with this extensively up to now, but he feels he's got to get back to it again, to press against our instinct, because our instinct, after verses 9 to 18, is to defend. It's to to defend ourselves, and we'll try and defend ourselves in one of two ways, either through religion or through rejection. Through religion by saying, I'm a good enough person for God to accept me, I do my best. Or through rejection by saying, I don't acknowledge this God, I know nothing about him, and therefore it's not fair for me to be judged by him. Those are the two reactions we will have to verses 9 to 18. And Paul now comes back to what he's spoken about up to now to be able to address those challenges. And his answer to both of those claims is the same. You will be judged by the law. And it's a law which is impossible to keep given your sinful nature. Either the law you were given or the law which is written in your heart to which your mind and your conscience continually hold you accountable. And he's reminding them of what he said in chapter 2, verse 15. Namely, that we show that the requirements of the law are written in our hearts, our consciences giving witness, and our thoughts now accusing, now even defending us. The point he's making is that there's a moral code written in all of our hearts, in the core of our being, which is unavoidable, regardless of where or who we are. No matter which country or culture or era I am in, if I walk up to a mother and child and I pull out a nine millimeter pistol and I put a bullet in the child's brain, the consequence and the result will be the same. The mother will want justice. My conscience Will bear witness against me. My thoughts and my memories will accuse me. And most disturbing of all, my thoughts and my memories will then find a way to defend me. And that happens to all of us in many, many ways each and every day. We cannot achieve righteousness in the sight of a holy God by obeying the law written or internal. We all know we have to behave according to the moral law. We all know that we break it. It's universal. It's in the core of our being. It's unavoidable. But if that's the case, Paul says, if I cannot achieve righteousness by being good, if I can't be accepted by God just by obeying the law, what use is the law? Paul says you're thinking of it in the wrong way. He says you're thinking of the law as a ladder to climb to God to be accepted. But that would be an impossible ladder. The rungs would get further and further apart the higher you went. The law isn't a ladder. It's a mirror. It's there to show you the extent and the depth and the insurmountable nature of your sin. That's what it's there for. It's there to drive you somewhere else. Which brings us to the final point. The light at the end of the tunnel. Sin can't be conquered by you because sin already has been conquered. Clive's not here, so we're going to wade into his sermon territory for next week. (laughs) Look at verses 21 and 22. Paul starts with two very, very important words. But now, a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes. It's not achieved, it's given. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I said the law is there to drive you somewhere else. It's there to drive you to someone else. It's there to drive you to someone who has conquered sin and who has the ability and can get you out from under it. It's there to drive you to someone who can freely give you the righteousness that you need but cannot possibly earn. Look at verse 22. This righteousness comes from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. And that's the good news that Paul feels compelled to bring. That's what frames Paul's letter to the Romans from the beginning right through to the end. So in chapter 1, verse 1, the first thing he says is, I'm a servant of Christ Christ. I'm called to be an apostle, I'm set apart for the gospel of God. And in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, for the Jew, for the Gentile. Why? Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, not by works, by faith from first to last. The law that accuses you from within your heart and the law that God gave to the Israelites is there above all to drive you to the cross. It's there to drive you to the only place where you can receive righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, where his life and his death can be attributed to you, where you can be made right with God. So yes, sin rules our relationship with God, and yes, sin rules our relationship with people, and yes, sin cannot be conquered by us, but gloriously, sin has been conquered by Christ. And if your faith and if your trust is with him, you will be in the right With God. You will be declared righteous because you'll be clothed with Christ's righteousness. My friends, we can praise God because that's the good news. Sin has been conquered. The victory is Christ's, but the benefit is ours if we just turn from our idolatrous selves and put our faith and our trust in the Savior. That's all we have to do, that's all we can do. You may want to know what happened to that other letter. Lutz, long as he anticipated, was killed not long after writing the letter to Jesse Owens. Miraculously, the letter got to Jesse a year later. Jesse did what Lutz asked of him. He packed his bag, (coughs) he traveled to Germany, and he found Kai, Lutz's son. He made sure he was okay. He made sure that Kai knew who his father was. They became close friends, and Jesse Owens was Kai's best man at his wedding. It's a helpful, an inadequate, but a helpful picture of what Christ did for us so that we could know who our Father is and so that we could be in the right with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you're a God who is rightly angry with us but we thank you that you're also a God of mercy, a God of grace, and you've provided a way for us to be in the right with you. Help any of us here, Lord, who don't know you, to bow the knee, to relinquish their sovereignty to you, to repent of their sins, good and bad, to put their faith and their trust wholly in you, so that they too can look to you and truly sing the last verse in our next song. Therefore, me the Savior stands, holding forth his wounded hands, Scars which ever cry for me, once condemned, but now set free. All this we pray and ask in Jesus' name.